Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah, it's just an alternative. Uh, We just want to be thought of right next to elk, you know, wild boar, bison, you know, not as well known as beef, for sure, and that's okay. Uh, but it's it's something that you can try instead every once in a while. Oh, and by the way, not only does it taste great, like those meats you already know, it's much healthier for you and healthier for the planet. That was Alex McCoy, founder and CEO of American Ostrich Farms. And this is the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. In today's episode, I'll be chatting with Alex on the basics of raising ostriches, how the meat is more similar to beef than anything else, and the significant health benefits. We'll dive into how Alex got interested in ostrich meat in the first place, how different cultures use all aspects of this species, and what it's like being at the forefront of ostrich farming in the United States. Alex and I will also cover how the company built their online presence and why he believes buying meat online is the future. But before we get started, this episode is brought to you by agcareers.com. If you're interested in career opportunities in agriculture, check out agcareers.com. To learn more, check out the links in the show notes below, as well as more links to more Farm Traveler episodes. Now, please enjoy episode 208 with Alex McCoy. All right, Alex, well, welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. All right. So I am, I'm super excited to chat with you because I have like a little family history with this, but how did you stumble upon starting an ostrich farm? One that's kind of like trying to bring it into the mainstream. It it stumbles a good word. It it really was a stumble. (laughs) I I was an athlete uh, in a totally different career and I was looking for a delicious piece of red meat 
but um, I also wanted to to feel good after eating it and actually only learned that later. Um, really, I just w- went into a restaurant in South Africa and said, give me the biggest, tastiest piece of red meat you have. <laughs> and they brought out ostrich and uh, I ate it and it tasted very similar to beef, except then after I ate it, I didn't feel lethargic. I didn't feel slow. I actually mm. went for a long run. And I was like, wow, what kind of red meat, beef-like red meat can you eat? And then feel so healthy, feel so strong after eating it. And basically that was the first experience I had with ostrich and everything I learned about this animal, about this meat uh, from there on out, it just got better and better and better. That's awesome. So you said that was in South Africa? Yes. I was actually working in a totally different career. I was actually working in finance uh, based in Johannesburg, traveling okay. throughout the continent, working on uh, uh, consumer products type of companies. So is that kind of like a staple in their diets over there? It's not actually. Uh, okay. Culturally, uh, you know, the reason why the Dutch started raising ostrich in South Africa uh, over 150 years ago was actually for their feathers and mm-hmm. for the leather. Right. Mm. So that leather is that really fancy quill pattern. You see on boots and, and yeah. fancy purses and and the feathers we the, uh, they use for a carnival in Brazil and um, in Beyonce dresses, you know, these big, beautiful ostrich feathers. Right. And so those were the two primary products uh, that came off the ostrich livestock. And the meat was a total afterthought. They just uh, gave it to the to the farm help to as, as part of their compensation. And so they didn't really think, oh, this is like a magical superfood red meat. And I saw that and they were serving it to the tourists in South Africa because the tourists come and they're like, oh, I want you know something exotic, something different, something very South African. And they're like, oh, try this ostrich steak. But uh, that is that was about uh, that was ten years ago, a little more than ten years ago now, and that is changing now. So it's now it's not just the tourists who are interested in ostrich meat. It's actually become more of an international thing. People are becoming more aware of it. So just in the last ten or fifteen years, that whole narrative is starting to shift away from just being the, uh, a, a livestock for feathers and skin and, and meat being kind of an afterthought. It's now becoming the primary thought. That's awesome. And like, how has it been? Because you started American Ostrich Farms. How has it been trying to like revitalize it here in the States to get people interested? Like, hey, it's very similar to beef, but it's more sustainable. And you don't feel you know, you might not be lethargic after you eat it. So what's what's that struggle been like for years trying to get it more popular? Consumer education is always difficult. Right. Mm. Um, the thing that with ostrich that we have a, a huge advantage that we have is that it tastes just like a product or products that people love. It tastes just mm. like a lean red, uh, a piece of a piece of meat that that, you know, you know, and love. Right. We're not trying to change consumers uh, taste buds. Right. The challenge is the name of it. It's an ostrich. Mm. It's not beef. It's not pork. It's not chicken. It's not one of these these, these, uh, these names that you've, you've, you've had for hundreds, you know, sometimes thousands of years have been, have been common. So really we just need to get past the word ostrich and it's just, and it's a no no brainer for people. What we've done recently is, is at some of our farmer's markets is start uh, serving people meatballs. So we'll have like a, a free sample meatball that we've been serving folks. And we're like, Oh, just try this meatball and try not to tell them, you know, kind of what it is too much. <laughs> and they're like, Oh, it's delicious. Tastes, you know, tastes like a, a great, you know, uh, red meat meatball. Hey, that's ostrich meat. You know, if you're like, really? No, like, yeah, yeah, it does. So that first interaction that consumers have with it is really difficult. And that's, 
basically we just need to figure out how to get more samples of ostrich into people's mouths because we know when you eat it if you like red meat you like ostrich period (laughs) that's really cool and that's such a a very clever marketing strategy like you're not trying to get them to cook a totally different way like you're trying to show them this is a great substitute for beef like whether it's burgers or meatballs or whatever even like steaks like like you said you're not trying to change their taste buds you're just trying to show them hey this is another option for you if you want to cook it this way yeah, it's just an alternative. Uh, we just want to be thought of right next to elk, you know, wild boar, mm. bison, you know, not as well known as beef for sure. And that's okay. Uh, but it's it's something that you can try instead every once in a while. Oh, and by the way, not only does it taste great, like those meats you already know, it's much healthier for you and healthier for the mm. planet. So yeah, going along the, which we'll, we'll talk about all of that, like, how how much healthier is it for you compared to traditional beef or other red meats? It is more than 95% lean. So mm, okay. there's only three grams of, uh, of, of fat in a serving of ostrich and one gram of saturated fat, which is the stuff that clogs your arteries. Um, and so, hey, there's a time and a place. People, you know, the, the whole keto movement and people saying, oh, hey, fat is good. And that's true. We're not against fat, but you can't eat a ton of fat all the time, right? I mean, some people do, but, you know, what we're saying is, hey, if you want to enjoy a really, uh, a really high-end piece of red meat, a really fancy piece of red meat, but don't want all the fat, you know, Wagyu is not your thing. I mean, that Wagyu tastes delicious, um, but if you want to reduce your fat intake, you can still have that craveable red meat experience, except, uh, you know, eating many fewer calories, you know, a fraction of the calories, a fraction of the fat of of some of these gourmet uh, beef products. Yeah. If you're trying to reduce your fat, Wagyu is not going to be a very good option for you because it's super duper fatty, but um, yeah, ostrich might be a good one. So like what sort of, I guess, could you say, how many substitutions do you have for ostrich meat um, when it comes to beef? Like what sort of steaks, what sort of roasts, um, what different types of meat can you get from an ostrich? It's so versatile. I mean, literally almost anything you can do with beef, you can do with ostrich. Mm. Now, of course, because of the lack of the fat, uh, you're not going to be able to do some of those fattier beef dishes. Um, you know, beef ribs are one of my favorite, you know, tons of fat, really delicious, but we don't, we don't have that. Our our rack of ribs on the ostrich is still super lean. Like everything on an ostrich is really lean. Um, you know, a brisket product. I mean, we, we have a product that's similar to that, but again, you have to add a little fat to that recipe, Mm -hmm. uh, as well. So really, you know, like I said, meatballs, burgers, fillets, uh, we have ostrich neck tastes just like ossobuco. Um, okay. But again, it's like a leaner spin on that. And we have a lot of high-end chefs that like to do the ostrich neck. They you slow roast it and it's like a lean ossobuco. So there, there's so many different things that you can do with ostrich. And we're trying to partner with chefs who, who are really bringing that creativity. And they're, we're figuring things, new things out every week. There's just so many different dishes you can make with different parts of the ostrich. So y'all were kind enough to send me and my wife some ostrich and it came with a pamphlet, a a pamphlet, which I wish I would have brought in here. Um, It had a great diagram, like kind of showcasing the different cuts you can get on ostrich, as well as like, you know, what it was similar in terms of like on a beef cow. And that was really cool. Like you're able to see very quickly that it's very similar cooking styles, taste styles and stuff like that. And so we made um, 
keto friendly, or I guess really keto enchiladas. We use zucchini instead of like tortillas and we ground up the ostrich meat or we had that we use ground ostrich meat, cooked it up and it tasted just like beef. And honestly, like I, I wasn't very lethargic after and it was really, really good. And my wife was like, you know what? This is actually delicious. So um, very like no, I, I didn't think it was going to be just totally odd, but I was very surprised because there wasn't any gaminess. I've heard people think that. But once you try it, there's like no gaminess. There's no like, I guess you could say like a poultry flavor at all. Like it tastes very natural of like a beef or a red meat. Yes. And of, of course people think that, and, uh, that's part of just experience, you know, more, the more years we were out there and this is a multi-year decade process. <clears throat> you know, we never, I never thought that this was just going to, just going to take a few years and <laughs> everyone would be aware that this is this great alternative. Uh, but people are going to have to figure out, yeah, ostrich is not a zoo animal. It's not something that you only see on safari, you know, and those are mm -hmm. kind of people's conceptions right now. And so you might think, oh, this is going to be at least as gamey as like a, a partridge or a pheasant or something kind of exotic sounding. And people just need more experience with the meat or, you know, to listen to your chef who has worked with ostrich before to say, Hey, you know, this is, this is not a big, a big commitment, not a big, a big leap uh, from where you're already really comfortable. Mm. So let's talk a little, a little bit about kind of what's the process like of raising ostriches? Like how, how does that go? How long do you raise them until they're processed? Like what does that all look like for you? So ostriches lay eggs, obviously, uh, yeah. or maybe not so obviously. And so <laughs> the, the breeding season lasts six months. It, it begins in, uh, in about February in, uh, we're in Idaho in the Northern hemisphere and it ends right around Labor Day. And so they lay eggs for that, you know, six, seven, eight month period. And then they incubate for 42 days. After that 42 days of incubation, they hatch and they, when they hatch, they're about a foot tall. Um, and then oh, wow. they grow very, very quickly. They're like, they're like big chickens. They don't grow quite as fast as chickens. <laughs> um, but again, back when, when um, Tyson and Purdue started, raising chickens at greater scale, those, those guys grew slowly too. Right. So, uh, ostrich is kind of like a chicken from the 1950s, if, if you will. Um, and so they grow about a foot every month of life until they're about six, seven, eight months old. They're about six feet tall and then they fill out and get heavier. And our uh, ideal harvest age is between 14 and 16 months of age. Okay. And at that time, the animal will grow to about 220, 230 pounds of, of live weight. And off of that, we will harvest about 80 pounds of boneless meat and other products. Nice. Okay. Now, how ornery are ostriches whenever you're raising them? Because I, my grandpa raised ostriches back in the early 1990s. Um, back when I was a kid and I can remember him running around, like getting chased by him. So I've heard some horror stories. So what's that process like? So for sure, during the breeding season, the, <laughs> some of these males get their hormones going and mm -hmm. ju just like any other animal, they get a little excited, a little territorial and can be mean, but really ostrich is the most kind ratite. Their, their family of flightless birds are called ratites. Okay. So within this family, there's emus, rias, cassowaries, kiwis. Ostrich is actually the nicest of all those guys. Mm. Like the kiwis probably pretty nice too. But uh, <laughs> emu is is actually, I would say, is is much meaner than an ostrich. So ostrich has two toes. One of mm -hmm. them has a has a toenail on it. 
Um, but, um, but, th- but they're not out there eviscerating lions with these things. That's, oh yeah. Those are, those are, those are tales that are, that are just not true. Um, by and large, ostriches are really friendly. They're actually, the, the word I would use is curious. Their disposition mm, is okay. curious. They're just always, you know, their brain is smaller than their eyeball. They look, they're always looking around and, and, and they're just, they're just very curious animals. So there, we have very, you know, we have thousands of ostriches out here and I would say we have maybe two, uh, two breeder males and maybe one female who are particularly, uh, tank tankers. Uh, but, uh, by and large, they're, they're, they're really just curious, pretty docile animals. That, that's a pretty good um, percentage of hostile versus gentle animals. I mean, you you look at like a beef herd or shoot, even like chickens or pigs, like you've always got, I don't know, out of a hundred head of cattle, you've got a couple dozen maybe that are like super mad and they're going to headbutt you. I mean, I feel like it's kind of pass fail. So that's good that, you know, a majority of, of ostriches are going to be kind. And, and that's, and that's during the breeding season in the off season, mm-hmm. we have very little problem with any of these guys. Um, it's, it's like a, a, another livestock. I mean, we move these guys around if, if, uh, if they get sick or injured, we, we, uh, tend to them. Um, you know, when we have to move them into harvest, you know, we actually have our own USDA slaughter facility on site. So we literally mm-hmm. walk them over to the, to, to animal harvest, which is really the, the, the pinnacle of, of animal production, you know, from like birth to pack to in a package in a grocery store, you know, the animal is born, lives and dies, you know, lives their entire life, you know, on the same property. It's, it's a much better, better way to do it. And, you know, Hey, it's in our best interest to make sure that these guys are docile enough that we can easily move them around for the safety of our, of our staff and the low stress, um, for the animal. Gotcha. And, you know, kind of in terms of, I guess, raising livestock, you know, with chickens, you always hear about like um, free range or grass fed, like what kind of growing practices do you practice with um, ostriches? And then what really, I, I don't know, like what can they qualify for? Like free range, organic, like what all goes on there? It's tricky because all of those, those are called labeling claims that are vetted by by the USDA. And it, it's tough because most of those claims do not have a specific uh, set of rules for ostriches. Mm-hmm. Those claims are made for established species. Uh, and, and so we, we can't say uh, f- uh, a lot of those claims because they are, they, the rules for what, what, what does this claim mean are established mm-hmm. only for those species, for cattle, for hogs, and so forth. So the claims that we make um, are, are different because ostriches are just, it's a different species. So it's raised differently. Like for example, we have, you know, these very large breeding pens, right? And ostrich mm-hmm. is a territorial creature. So if you just threw all these things out on the open range, quote unquote, uh, they would not be productive livestock, right? They, they naturally need to seek out, um, groupings. So like one male, will 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 uh will mate with multiple females in a group and they need their own territory to feel comfortable enough to to breed and be productive so uh, a lot of those things are different uh are different for ostrich than they are for other animals that's interesting okay and so like for example you might be raising them to be it they might you know be quote unquote free range because they have so much room but you can't label them as that because nothing has really been established right 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 and that's something we're working on i mean we know that consumers do care about mm-hmm. a lot of these different types of claims and that's something that we're going to have to work on to get uh, the definition of these claims with the established standards bodies 
to uh, so, so that people when, when, when we when we make a claim like that, people know what we're talking about, or you know, they think they do, even though we we still need to agree with the standards body. What what does that actually mean? Uh, like some things that we do have are USDA, you know, high level federal USDA claims, like like. Um, like animal welfare, you know, we mm-hmm. have a, uh, you know, on our labels, we say, uh, you know, uh, humanely raised. And that is a USDA standard that we basically apply with the USDA. We say, here's our program. Here's what, here are all the things that we do when we handle the animals. And then that is actually approved by the USDA that yes, that that is a humane way to handle these animals. So there are certain claims that don't have really hard, bright line definitions that we are able to qualify for because we just explain it and it's common sense. You know, here's how we treat the animals. We, if you treat the animals like this, that's humane. Uh, and so a, a lot of that, we have to establish those standards. And really there's a huge onus on us being the first large scale ostrich producer to establish what are, how, what, is, what, what are the best practices with raising ostrich? So I feel like there's, there's extra responsibility and onus on us to take the high ground at every possible juncture, at every opportunity we have to make the quote unquote right decision, we have to do that and then some, because we know there are gonna be a lot of others that follow us and and that's great. We want more competition in this industry, but we also want them to to do it the right way because it it, it would look bad on all of us if there were folks that started raising ostriches in ways that consumers don't appreciate, right? And so that's when I started this company, I, I thought of the consumer first. I wanted to mm. build a comp- build an industry that you know consumers would look at this and be like, "Oh yes, this makes sense as a protein, as a livestock." And you, you got to think about how consumers are going to react to everything that you're doing. So that's interesting because I wanted to ask, like, what does it feel like to be at the forefront of this industry? I mean, were there any I don't know some struggles that you had come up because you're kind of like at the beginning of this, like anything that came up that you were not expecting at all? So many things. Really, like <laughs> Just, what? I would say <laughs> I'd say almost everything. Okay, <laughs> uh, especially not have for me personally, not having come from a deep uh, or really any animal background at all. I had to learn li- literally everything, like everything, everything from from scratch. the The only advantage I had is that that I did I appreciated how little I really knew. <laughs> which was really, truly little. So uh, we, we've had challenges with absolutely everything, you know, learning how to build fencing for ostrich. How do mm. you do that? What's the, yeah, what's okay. the vet? I mean, I could build a brick wall, but that's not going to be cost effective and the ostrich isn't going to be able to see. I mean, but, you know, anyway, there's, there just, there were, there's so many little choices that other uh, livestock producers of established species have have known how to make for generations generations and generations that I had to that, that we had to figure out you know from scratch so just just so many things <laughs> that's the best way to answer that question <laughs> that's awesome I mean it sounds like you guys are at a very I don't know an interesting point in this industry like you are kind of the leader in the space but you're also wanting some more people to join in because obviously competition is going to push everything forward so are y'all kind of working with I don't know, more companies that are looking to come into this space. Yes. And we, and we love that too. And one of the things that's really been fabulous is getting our own slaughter facility, our USDA slaughter Mm. facility online. So we, um, we can, we can accept birds from other, other ostrich producers and we can, we can harvest their birds for them. Uh, That's a tremendous service because, you know, every link of this value chain is different for ostrich than it is for other animals. 
hmm. um, you know, from the incubation to growing them out to, to feeding them uh, to, uh, to 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 then harvesting them and packaging them. Everything is a little bit different for ostrich, and so we love working with other. You know, there are other farmers that are really good hatcheries, and uh, so you know, we'll, um, we'll help them out by, by buying chicks from them at certain, at certain stages of the life. So there are, in this ecosystem, there are room for a lot of different types of farmers to get involved in ostrich production and product mm-hmm. production. And so, the, you know, the challenge that we did is, is we ended up doing the whole thing ourselves, like vertically integrated from, you know, genetics research, all the way to consumer goods and direct distribution, we did all that because because all the, those those parts of the value chain didn't exist. So now we have those parts of the value chain, and we're looking forward to sharing them with other folks. So the next person that comes along that, that is excited about getting into ostrich doesn't have to do everything. Mm-hmm. So that's absolutely wild. And real quick. Um, I want to talk about your USDA processing facility. Is there I mean, how many focused ostrich processing facilities are there in the u.s zero well one zero one <laughs> you guys yeah <laughs> so like what was it like getting that set up i mean did you have to pretty much like come up with the standards with usda to get that all figured out well yes and no i mean there are a few i mean a very small handful of other facilities throughout the country that do uh, slaughter ostrich okay the problem is these guys don't like to do that because ostrich is trickier they have feathers mm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a pain. Um, they you know, they, they they need taller fencing. They, they just the requirements are a little bit different. So it's hard to find processors that will do it. However, the USDA does have experience with ostrich. Uh, so uh, writing what's called a HACCP plan is is the thing uh, that every USDA facility needs to have that you, these are um, hazard and, and critical control points inside a slaughter facility um, that you have to be very careful that you meet all the requirements for the standard of food safety that the USDA uh, has for all of its inspected plants. So there, there is actually a uh, history and a body of knowledge around this because, because look, at the end of the day, the, the, pro- the meat coming off these animals, the risk of contamination and bacteria and all the things where, where, where you have a slaughter of different species is very mm-hmm. similar for ostrich. We just needed to write our own plan to operate in our facility. And, and most of these plans are, are they're very facility specific. So every, you have to write a plan that's specific for your own facility. So we, we always knew that we were going to have to have our own plan. Um, and, and it really wasn't too much more difficult than doing it for any other species. It's, it's different. Mm-hmm. takes more work, but uh, same sort of process. And in our plant, by the way, we process for other um, other species as well. So we have a HACCP plan written for beef and for lamb and for goat. And we process uh, for other livestock producers uh, locally as well. Okay, that's awesome. So you're not just like processing ostrich, you're processing a bunch of other stuff to help, you know, local ranchers around you. That's cool. Yes, which post pandemic has been really, really important because a lot of the uh, slaughter capacity went away during mm-hmm. the during during the pandemic. First, it was social distancing, and then some business models fell apart, and then there was consolidation, and so there's been a lot of difficulty for uh, small scale livestock producers to to maintain this very this critical link of the value chain and uh, okay. You know, we got a, a loan from a, a local entity called the uh, Sun Valley uh, Institute for Resilience, 
And um, basically their goal is to create resilience in the food system in the Intermountain West and helping a slaughter plant like ours get off the ground is creating resilience for a lot of small animal producers who sometimes have, have nowhere else to take their animals. That's interesting. And so was that set up before or after the pandemic? Uh, those guys have been around for a while. So they, they were set up, um, they've been around for, for quite some time. Uh, and, and, and the, the pandemic kind of shone a very bright spotlight <laughs> on a part of the animal production of the livestock value chain that badly needed resilience. That's very true. Yeah. That's a pain point that I've heard from a ton of farmers, especially those that are kind of, um, that kind of rent the, the direct to consumer route, like the pain points that the pandemic brought up in terms of processing beef, chicken, ostrich, even, um, and that we needed a lot more slaughterhouses around the country because the problem, I heard so many people post about this, but they would say, oh, we have a quote unquote beef problem. And then people would be like, we don't have a beef problem. We have a processing problem. We have a bottleneck problem. So it's not that we're running out of meat. We're running out of places to send that meat to process it. So yeah, absolutely wild times. Yeah. When, when, when everything is going smoothly and the economy is operating as you expect, there's no variation. Those, those plants those existing, got, got very efficient and they were able to figure out how to make a lot of money and lower costs and all those things. And that all comes crashing down when you have an exogenous event, like a pandemic, mm-hmm. it, it really shows how little clothes everyone was wearing in the, uh, in this industry. I like that. So let's move on to talk about, I know when it comes to meat and even just like food in general, the new hot topic, it's not organic, it is regenerative. So how much more regenerative is ostrich compared to other meats? Because I know um, the email we were sending back and forth shows that there's like a lot of really good benefits to ostrich meat compared to other meats. Yes. So uh, regenerative is, again, one of these uh, claims that we're not going to be able to make with ostrich, unfortunately. Uh, Look, the thing that is special about ostrich is, uh, with regard to its environmental footprint, is how efficient the animal is, Mm. okay? And so regenerative is talking about a a way in which you are managing your livestock operation, okay? That doesn't talk anything about the efficiency of the animal. So those are kind of two different concepts. And so with ostrich, where we are really, really strong is the efficiency of the animal. We have this biology, this uh, bioreactor, if you will, that accepts inputs, foodstuffs and water, energy, land, and turns it into, uh, very in a very simplified fashion, it turns it into a protein that a consumer can eat. Mm-hmm. And so ostrich is an extremely efficient uh, converter of those inputs into, into a protein that consumers want to eat much more efficient than any other red meat out there. And so when we talk about sustainability, we talk about all of the, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions that, you know, ostriches don't, uh, don't burp or fart. (laughs) And so that, that reduction in methane emissions is, is dramatic. So, um, so again, with ostrich, it's really more about the efficiency of the animal than the methods in which we are we are raising them compared to a rotationally grazing type of animal like a ruminant. So like an mm-hmm. ostrich is not a ruminant, right? So it, uh, you know, by its nature really can't uh, 
really, really can't be part of that rotational grazing type of setup that you that you need to have to to be called technically regenerative. Okay, yeah, th- that's something that I feel like a lot of consumers don't think about. Um, and that, I mean, I'm definitely one of them. Like, I don't really think about the efficiency of the animal. I think about the efficiency of the raising process, but not the animal. Um, and so that's that's really, really cool that they are like extremely efficient, but also, and I think this is a great thing listed on your website. Um, they're very, very efficient, but they're also like delicate dinosaurs. They need a lot of like tender love and care, right? Because they're very delicate. Yes. Yeah, so it's like a big chicken. So they're, they're skittish. They're, um, mm. they're much more difficult to raise than, than beef or lamb, you know, beef or lamb, you know, you can throw them out on the range and, and, uh, you know, go check on them <laughs> in, a, in a few weeks type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Ostriches just require more care. They, they get stressed out easily. And that's why humane handling is so important. And our animal husbandry practices, because these animals just require more, more thought, more care, uh, more TLC than, than other livestock. And so on the one hand, that's kind of unfortunate. I really wish it wasn't the case, but yeah. it is. So the nice thing about that thing, the thing that I like is that uh, when people ask like, oh, how do you treat the birds and, and, and how do we know that? Basically, uh, you need to treat the ostriches really well and have them live very low stress lives or they don't survive, like literally. Mm. Um, and so the nicer we are to our ostriches, the more, you know, we give them enclosures where they can be inside. If they want to be inside, they can move outside. They can both go to the shade. They can go, you know, they can, they can act out all their natural behaviors with the facility that we've, we've set up. That is, it, it enables us to have a no compromise humane handling program because, the nicer we are to them, the more we can let them behave like a, an ostrich in the wild, the, the better it's going to survive, the more it's going to thrive. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I had an old animal science professor. He once said, um, a happy animal is going to produce. A miserable animal is not going to produce. They are not going to grow. So it's literally in your best interest as the farmer to make sure your animal is happy or else you're not going to be profitable. So clearly you've got to watch out for your animals. That's got to be more true with ostrich than any other livestock. And I'm no livestock <laughs> expert as far as other, yeah. but I'm telling you with ostrich and you can tell, you can tell by their disposition if they're happy or not. They're expressive creatures. I mean, I said that, you know, they're curious. You can look at them and you, you obviously can't tell what they're thinking, but you can tell if that, if, if there's any stress in that bird, they, they lift their tail feathers if they're stressed, if they're hot, they will, you know, lift their wing feather. You can tell a lot by, uh, without much of an animal background by, by looking at their behaviors and they, they talk to you and they, and they tell us, Hey, we, you know, we, we need this to be happy. And, uh, and that's, that's how you get the best production out of them anyway. So is it ostriches or emus that we always think about as burying their heads in the sand when they're stressed or something? Yeah, that's definitely the ostrich, uh, <laughs> the old ostrich joke. Um, you know, it, it it's obviously not true. <laughs> um, okay, okay. I was curious. Yeah. It's not true. I mean, really, look, uh, ostrich, uh, they're omnivores, actually. They eat little bugs. They eat things off okay. the ground. They, even, they eat grit like chickens to digest their food. So they are often pecking the ground, you know, with their head. So you'll often see yeah. an ostrich with his head pecking the ground. Um, you know, another place that that might come from is, uh, you know, the ostrich neck is like a giant periscope. Mm-hmm. Right. So like if, if the ostrich is looking for a predator, you know, he'll he, he'll sit down in, in like a tall grass and then you'll see his head like go down to the ground, <laughs> you know, to almost hide. You know, we think of like fight or flight ostrich, you know, 99 out of 100 times is going to choose flight. 
over fight. Okay, okay. Interesting. Yeah, you think it might be the opposite, that they might kind of fight, but okay, that's fun. I mean, if they get cornered, they will, and they feel really yeah. uncomfortable. But hey, these guys can run over 40 miles an hour. I mean, they can do that for a reason. Yeah, they're also fast. I mean, they've got some like super powerful legs. Yes, and each one of those legs, like we, we, we sell the drumstick. If you want like a, a giant uh, Fred Flintstone drumstick, we actually <laughs> sell these things as a, as a novelty. People like can grill them or smoke them. I mean, if you want like a 25-pound drumstick, I mean, that's why they can run so fast. It's like this massive muscle. So, okay, speaking of that, like because they can run so fast, um, does that is is that is the leg meat kind of like super tough because like they're they're very athletic instead of being like very slow and lethargic? It's really not. I mean, and there, hmm. there are different muscles in the leg. Some are more tender than others. So mm-hmm. the least tender of those muscles we grind into into our our ground steak bur- burger products. And, um, and so, yeah, so, so, so there definitely are some that are, are less tender and we grind those up, but there are others, you know, there's a, there's a tip, right. That that kind of connects the, the leg to the body that can be really, really tender. So, um, so yeah, we, we get about, um, 30 to 40% of the animal are, um, those, uh, those less tender pieces that we, that we will grind. Um, and similar to like a, a deer or an elk, you know, a lot of those, really, really tender fillets are on the back, like the body of the animal. There are no breasts on the, there's no breast meat on the ostrich. It's all, hmm. uh, on the, on the back of the, uh, of the carcass there. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can imagine if there was like breast meat on the ostrich, it would be like 25 pounds or something like absolutely massive. And, and look, the, the, the thing about ostrich, you know, chickens have been bred over time mm-hmm. to, to create the type of meat, uh, that, that people want in that, in those animals. And, um, you know, ostrich has been totally untouched, you know, genetically. I mean, other than the South Africans who have, uh, raised ostrich for the leather and the feathers. And again, they've been raising for the leather and feathers, not for meat. So, uh, so there's a huge opportunity for us to figure out how do we do that in a responsible, in a way that makes sense. But, but anyway, right now there's, there's no breast meat on an ostrich. We don't plan (laughs) to have any, anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, how long do you think it would take to develop some like really ideal genetics for, um, I don't know, having more tender meat where you're not having to use that, what the 30 to 40%, like how long do you think it would take for that? Decades, you know, a long time. And again, you know, chickens have a much shorter life cycle. So mm-hmm. you're going to get many more generations of chickens much faster. And it took Tyson and Purdue decades, even notwithstanding using drugs and hormones and, and, and junk like that, 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 I, that they experimented with, which of course we're never going to do. Um, mm-hmm. Even without that stuff, it, it took a very, very long time for them to create superior chickens. Um, the nice thing about ostrich is that we're not competing with chicken. We have a red meat um, and so we don't feel like we need to uh, create you know, super ostriches to, <laughs> to have a product that that is viable, that works. I gotcha. Um, all right. And speaking about ostriches and, and products and stuff like that, do y'all do anything with the ostrich eggs at all? Like Because, I mean, they're huge about the size of your head. Do you do anything with them? I wish we did more with them. Um, what we, we try to hatch everything that uh, that is laid. So every, every ostrich egg that is laid, we, uh, if we have a reason to believe that it is fertilized, which we sure hope it is, we incubate it, you know, a mm-hmm. baby ostrich on the ground, you know, is worth a lot more to us than selling this egg as an eating egg. 
Uh, now there are some ostrich folks that do um, sell eating eggs and they're delicious. You make a giant omelet. I mean, it's, it's very similar to, it's, it's, it's not too much unlike a chicken egg and it is really fun, but it just, we can't justify the cost. Uh, we will put it this way. We, it wouldn't make sense for anyone to buy an ostrich eating egg from us uh, when we can go incubate it and, and turn it into a real live ostrich. Uh, but wherever there are ostrich farms that do do that, and I highly recommend folks go get those because it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. So yeah, my grandpa raised ostriches like 20, 30 years ago. And my grandma, who was born and raised in Cuba, she lived with, them, or, I'm sorry, my great grandma. Um, her name was Mima. She would always take the ostrich eggs. I forget how they would, what they would do with them, but every now and then they would have an ostrich egg that that it it didn't hatch. And so there'd be like a little hole on it where they got the egg yolk out and everything. And she would paint on it and she would paint like literally whatever, but it was always so fun. And so in all of our houses, we had just these little ostrich eggs up with little paintings from her. And they were just so fun. She'd always be so excited. Like, look at this new ostrich egg that I made. So I'll have to send you, I've got one picture my mom sent me. I'll have to send you one just to kind of see what it was. But I always remember those. So anytime I think of ostrich, I think of those painted eggs. Yeah, it's a great canvas because it's such a impossibly large surface. It's like, it's yeah. shocking. It's like, what is that? Is that, is it real? People ask us all, because we, we do sell some of our infertile eggs. Mm-hmm. We drill a hole uh, in the end with a diamond drill bit. So it's nice and soft. And we get that, that yolk out of there when we sterilize them and we sell these for, for arts and crafts and for this exact uh, thing you're talking about. Yeah. And people, people send us the most amazing pictures of the things that they've created. It's, it's really a, a really unique canvas to paint on or use as a, a arts and crafts type thing. Yeah. It's super fun. And I mean, they're super thick too. I mean, those eggshells are pretty sturdy. They're really, really thick. Well, they're built. So, uh, you know, 300, you know, some of these male ostriches can push 350 pounds, you know, mm. that male ostrich, uh, you know, can sit on those eggs and they got to not, not be able to break. So it's, yeah, it's a really thick, impressive thing. It's that way on purpose to withstand that. Um, so this is, I, I love just, I don't know that, that you guys are at the, the beginning of this huge industry of ostriches in the United States. Like, what else do you think can be done to, I don't know, change the perception, get more people on board with trying this sort of meat? Yeah, that's something we think about all the time. And part of it is to have ostrich be available at uh, for different meal occasions in different mm-hmm. contexts. You know, we want people to think about ostrich whenever they think about protein, right? And so, you know, uh, there's right now we only sell uh, frozen uh, frozen meat and by and large frozen meat is, it's a dinner item, right? You're mm-hmm. going to have to gear up for cooking dinner, cooking burgers, thought you got to thaw it out. You got to marinate it and grill it. And there's a lot of work involved there. So I think the next big step for us is going to be value added products. So we're going okay. to make, uh, jerkies and, uh, sticks, meat sticks and, and snacks that people can take with them at different eating occasions. You know, maybe you're, uh, you know, take it to the gym, put it in your gym bag, uh, take, give it to your kids for a snack for lunch. Um, so creating shelf stable meat, ostrich meat products is going to be able uh, to help us be present at more meal occasions, snack time, lunch time. Um, we're even thinking about making some, um, sausages, uh, mm. that could be had at breakfast. So uh, ostrich needs to appear in more places as a, as an alternative uh, than just, than just dinner time. So that's, that's next for us to kind of get the word out there that this is a meat that, that you can have just like any other red meat, you know, kind of any time of the day. 
So what all goes into like when you're trying to develop more value added products like that, like jerky or sausage, like, are you working with a chef in house? And then maybe you've got a couple consumers that you want their opinion on, like what all goes into that process of developing those products? Well, right now we're, we're, it's such early days for us in developing value added products. We're actually going with products that are well-known and do well mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. other, uh, with other species. Right. Gotcha. We're trying not to invent the wheel more times than we absolutely need to. <laughs> so ostrich meat itself is enough of a differentiator. Mm -hmm. We're going to go, you know, with a, with a breakfast sausage, you know, we're going to go with an Italian sausage that people already know and love. We're going to go with an original, um, you know, snack stick that, uh, that tastes that, that that's going to have a very similar taste profile to a snack stick that is already selling really well. Right. And so that's, that's kind of the, you know, I, I think our products are great. I think there's a lot of opportunity to do all sorts of different things with ostrich, but I need to have the discipline. Our, our, our company needs to realize that we're already doing enough. That's new, the things mm -hmm. that we can make more, um, more approachable, more familiar to customers is going to, is going to work out better for us in the short term. So in the short term, you know, the fact that it's ostrich is enough of a change. We're going to, we're going to go into product categories that are established and doing well and create an alternative protein in those existing categories. That's super interesting. Like you have a new product, but you don't want to give consumers, you don't want to stress them out with too much new because then they're going to be like, you know, I don't want to try this new thing and try it in a new recipe. Like, like you're saying, you've got a new product, but you don't want consumers to, you don't, you're not trying to reinvent the wheel you just have a different type of wheel. Like, hey, give this a try. Yes. And and, and like I said, you know, I, I think about this business, this industry in decades. Mm -hmm. And right now we just need to get more consumers comfortable with trying ostrich in form factors and at mealtimes that they're already familiar with. They know exactly what to do with it, with some red meat, you know, and 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 this is just a, a different type to try with, with with what you're already comfortable with, you know, one thing at a time. Yeah, too much new uh, consumers will will just will, will get turned off. They won't be able to handle it. Oh, 100%. And what kind of challenges do you have? Because I mean, you, right now, like you said, you're selling direct to consumers online, like selling them frozen meat. But like, how difficult is that? Like getting into those kitchens when you're delivering nationwide? Well, look, I mean, um, before the pandemic, um, well, when I started this business 10 years ago, mm -hmm. meat through the mail was really not a thing. I mean, there was Omaha Steaks and very few other national purveyors of even beef, you know, big, uh, you know, big proteins uh, through the mail at all. And so that so I, I kind of thought that that would change. And, and thankfully it has. And so by and large, people are, you know, it's this tidal wave of consumers getting more accustomed to ordering premium meats online di mm -hmm. delivered directly to you. So that, so that is a, a long-term trend that we're, we're riding along with a lot of other successful companies, you know, crowd cow butcher box. There's a lot of really, uh, really well-funded, really well-managed companies that are blazing a big path here. And we're just, we're jumping, we're jumping in right behind them to try to try to leverage a lot of what they were already doing. Just like selling any other thing, uh, selling, you know, perishable goods through the mail is obviously more difficult logistically, yeah. mm -hmm. but Hey, people need to be able to trust the company that you're buying from and our repeat 
orders are really high because we go way out of our way to make sure that that purchasing experience is is really premium and that people feel like they're taken care of and they're getting their questions answered and they don't have any uncertainty about whether or not their meat's going to arrive uh, frozen or not. Uh, you know, we, we need we have a guarantee and, you know, we just you know, if, if a carrier messes up an order, we replace it instantly. So mm. there's a lot of customer service. There's a lot of thought that goes into packaging. There's just a lot of things you have to do well to to get people to try it more than once. Yeah, I got my order, I think maybe two days after you guys shipped it and it came with dry ice. Everything was still frozen. It was super cold in that box, um, which I think that's the first um, direct-to-consumer meat product I've gotten that has had dry ice in it. I think so. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. I believe so. But yeah, it was frozen and it tastes delicious. Let it thaw for like a, a day again, just like beef. Um, I've got the steak and I'm super duper excited to try the steak somehow. Yeah. Frozen, you know, consumers getting premium meats frozen is the future of, mm -hmm. of perishable products. Um, people, you know, we used to hear and we still hear sometimes, you know, oh, we wish it was fresh, you know, and what they mean by fresh is refrigerated. Yeah. But the problem is when you get something that's refrigerated, you know, it's between 36 and 42 degrees. That's a very, very narrow temperature band. That is very, very hard to keep the meat product in that temperature band over a complicated logistics supply chain. And so what ends up happening is that temperature does go high. It does go low. And, 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 and that makes for a much lower quality product. Um, there's this, you know, these, these, uh, this old wives tale about how, uh, you know, frozen meat, you know, never frozen meat is just better. And it's just not true. Uh, a lot of the top chefs now are, are realizing that that's just not the case and you getting your meat, uh, you know, which was shipped, uh, you know, across the country and then arriving in a, in a frozen state, you know, meat can't grow bacteria when it's frozen. You know, mm. and, and anything that is above freezing is going to the quality is going to degrade much more quickly than if something that is kept frozen the entire throughout the entire cold chain. And to keep something frozen, all you got to do is keep it below 32 degrees. I mean, we store our meat at negative 10. Uh, so it can oh, wow. last a very long time in our packaging mm. before you have any quality degradation. Uh, but as long, you know, for the couple of days that it takes to get to a consumer, all, all it needs to do is, is stay below 32 and then it goes into your freezer and you have a product that just could not be more fresh. And so I, I think what you're going to see is both more people getting uh, higher quality frozen meats through the mail. This is a trend that is going to continue. And you're mm -hmm. also going to see in grocery stores, uh, a lot of those fresh fresh uh, refrigerated cases are going to be replaced with frozen cases. And this is already happening. There's a there's a big uh, new uh, concept called uh, or, or a chain called Wild Fork, and these guys sell our ostrich meat, and uh, it's all frozen. The entire store mm. is is freezer cases, and I think you're going to see in Whole Foods and a lot of these more premium uh, places to 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 buy meat, you're going to see many more freezer cases and far fewer refrigerated cases in the future. Yeah, I think people are slowly learning that like frozen meat is going to taste just as just as well as fresh and um i don't know if you know him but the online cook like the influencer i guess you could say max the meat guy do you know who i'm talking about no he he cooks all sorts of stuff um he's super active on youtube instagram um and he did an experiment a couple months ago where he cooked i think it was like a new york strip steak he had one frozen and one that wasn't frozen and he cooked oh, cool. them and he found out that the cook time was almost similar and they were they were both just as tender 
both just as tasty. And he was like, if you don't have time to thaw your meat and if you've got frozen meat, it's going to be fine as just as fine as meat that wasn't frozen. So, yeah, I feel like we're slowly learning that, you know, just because it's frozen doesn't mean it's not going to be as high quality as never frozen meat. Yes. And uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be safer for the consumer, Mm -hmm. less expensive from logistics perspective. And by the way, so much less waste. There is such a tremendous amount of waste. You know, it sits on the shelf. Something refrigerated sits on the shelf of a grocery store. They're throwing that stuff out after two weeks Mm -hmm. or they're selling it for a dollar for dog food. And um, it's just and and who bears the, the vast majority of the cost of that waste? The farmer. So uh, when you cut that that level of waste out of our food system, you, yeah. you just get tremendous benefits up and down the value chain. It has to happen. A hundred percent. And I mean, like if if it's all frozen, less is going to waste. Hopefully, the price is going to go down because we're not having to throw out nearly as much. The farmer can right. make more money. All those the consumer, that's all margin that's that's, oh, yeah. that's currently being lost in the system. Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I feel like what you guys are doing for ostrich meat is kind of what crowd cow has done for Wagyu because they've made it very accessible to buy Wagyu online to get it shipped to you. Cause before, like there was really nowhere to buy it. Like you might buy it, you might try it at a steakhouse, but if you wanted to order it, you had to know somebody that knew somebody, but now you right. can go online and you can find it, whether it's ostrich meat with you guys or Wagyu with them or, um, we've got some friends at Range Market. Um, I interviewed them a couple months ago. They do like small farm or small family ranches. And they sent me some beef tongue and some beef heart that I'm going to try. Like you can't find that in a grocery store. So yeah, I think frozen meat is definitely going to be the future. And you guys are doing an amazing job when it comes to, I don't know, getting people more willing to try ostrich meat because it's super healthy. It's better for the environment. It's a great alternative option. And it's also super convenient, you know, finding this stuff online, you know, it's, it just couldn't be easier. We've learned from so many other companies um, like Warby Parker, you know, who come along Mm -hmm. and figured out how to do direct to consumer, you know, how to own that consumer relationships and, and and make your consumers happy. You know, there's a lot between, there's a lot that we've learned from, from folks like that and folks from like, like CrowdCow and and ButcherBox that have really done well in the meat category specifically. So, you know, this is just the, 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 animal protein or, or protein to include plant-based guys is just such a massive market that uh, I don't see any of this as competition. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, 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 all of these folks together innovating, you're, there's just going to be so much, so many savings, both the, the prices are going to come down, the quality is, is, is going to be higher than these refrigerated meats. And uh, it's just going to make for a more efficient, more resilient, more distributed food system in the United States. So when it comes to ordering from you guys, do y'all do just one-time shipments or do you have like a monthly box or what goes on there? Yes, we have both. So nice. um, for sure, when people are ordering for the first time, they probably don't want to lock themselves into a subscription <laughs> right off the bat. So absolutely, most of our orders are, uh, are are one-time a la carte orders. You can put, put whatever you want in your box. Um, we do also, we offer discounts for sample packs for, for first-timers. Um, and we do all, of course, have subscription shipping as well, where you get uh, 10 or even 15% discounts if you uh, sign up for a subscription that you get on a recurring basis. And you folks choose, you want it every couple of weeks, you want it every eight weeks. It's all up to the consumer. It's a pretty flexible system. That's perfect. So they're not getting roped in and they've got a lot of flexibility. That's awesome. Because I know there are some sites where it's like you have to do a monthly or you have to do it bi-monthly or something like that. 
Yeah, there are some that are some sites are, are subscription first, like ButcherBox. Mm. Like they don't let mm. you in there until you start building your subscription out. Like the meat only comes at the very end. It's all subscription first, and and that model, hey, that works great, and they're having a lot of success for that. And I know exactly why they're doing it. Uh, for us, we know that the consumers need a little bit more information. They need um, less commitment, <laughs> right? They're yeah. they're not ready to commit, and we're totally okay with that. And then when people are ready to commit, we're going to give you a deal. We're going to give you a discount. So there you go. Yeah. You're giving them an opportunity to kind of dip their toes in the water, see how it is. And then they can take the plunge. They're like, you know what? Let's do the, subscri the subscription. I ordered a couple of packages of meat. They were delicious. Treated, they treated me really well. So now I can do the whole subscription model. Yeah. But I mean, if you go on our website, it's, uh, it's as easy as ordering a pair of socks. I mean, it just, <laughs> we, we, we try to make it as easy as possible for people. There you go. Yeah. So if people want to learn more about, um, about you guys, about American ostrich farms, where can they go to order from you to learn about it? And really also like some recipes and stuff. Where can they go? All on our website. It's AmericanOstrichFarms.com. You really can't miss us out there in ostrich land on the interwebs. <laughs> and uh, on there, we have recipes for every single cut. So there will be cuts on there that you haven't heard of. Uh, and there will be cuts that you have heard of, you know, everyone's heard of burgers and meatballs and things. Um, but there are, you know, and again, the ground meat you can do, you can use just like, just like beef, you know, tacos and, you know, enchilada, like anything that you can do with beef, you can do with ostrich. And so we have a huge recipe library on there to give people inspiration and help them out to uh, to make sure that their first experience with ostrich is a great one. That's awesome. Well, um, Alex, this has been so cool. I, again, thank you so much for for sending the me, me the meat. It was super delicious. And it was so fun to chat all things ostrich with you because I had like a cool little connection with my grandparents. So this is fun. Thanks so much for being on. I loved it. Thanks a lot for having me, Trevor. Thanks again to Alex for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. I really encourage you to try some ostrich meat if you would like to. Just check out their website, AmericanOstrichFarms.com. Allie and I tried some, and it was absolutely delicious. Go to our Instagram page, also linked below, to see our recipe. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. game in wild places tuning to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment